0: This is the Vanguard Podcast. I'm Gavin. And I'm Zach. And today we're so thrilled to welcome to the program, Marianne Williamson, author, activist, former presidential candidate, and host of the Marianne Williamson Podcast. How are you doing today, Marianne?
1: I'm great, thank you. Thank you for having me on.
2: Yeah, we're so excited to speak with you today. We're very grateful for your time.
0: Thank yeah, you. super excited to, um, to speak to you today, Marianne. Uh, I guess a good question to start with, one that I've uh, been wanting to ask you for a while is, um, I was a big fan of your campaign for president and, and one of the suggestions that I thought that you brought to the table that was just really underappreciated was that of creating a Department of Peace. Um, obviously, the United States still has a tremendous influence on the world stage. And there's no reason that that influence can't be used for good means, for diplomatic means rather than militaristic or imperialist uh, means. As you said in your campaign so beautifully, peace building is both preferable to and, and less costly than war. We spend more money on our military than the next nine uh, militaries in the world. And I think that overall, your campaign had some of the best, most creative uh, approaches to talking about foreign policy, even more so than other candidates that were running that also made foreign policy a big um, part of their campaign. I think yours was just, um, you know, so underrated. And um, foreign policy is obviously the most neglected and usually underreported on aspect of a presidential agenda. Um, So how do you think the war anti-war movement stands under a Biden presidency? And also, what do you think we can do to meaningfully resist these realities as activist citizens? especially in an age of increased drone warfare, uh, the horrors of which are obviously less visible to your average American than uh, usually wartime is. Obviously, during the Vietnam War or even the Iraq War, the anti-war movement was so much more robust.
1: Absolutely. You know, a young man uh, about you guys said to me once one of my events, he said, Miss Williamson, you're just an aging hippie. He said, you guys were just all sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And I remember responding, uh, that was just part of the day. <laughs> the rest of the day, we stopped the war. What have you done? We took mm. on the military industrial complex. We, we protested the war in Vietnam. So you're right. When I was younger, there was a ban the bomb. There was a lot of talk, not only about uh, U.S. military, certainly involvement in Vietnam. I remember, a lot of that had to do with the fact that there was a draft then. Yeah. So it wasn't just other people; it was our brothers, our our sons, our our friends, our loved ones. That that was was a large part of it, and also all of the conversation about the nuclear, uh, the nuclear industry, ban the bomb. And what has happened now is such a fatigue has set in um, on such a deep level that you hear some bitching and moaning and complaining about the military industrial complex, but no no serious. Um, resistance to it beyond what you mentioned in the in the presidential campaign. I thought it was extraordinary how little conversation there was about, about um, uh, foreign policy, although I'm also not surprised because I see what, how the system really operates now. And I see what they did to Tulsi, and I see what they did to me, because to, to take on the military-industrial complex, just like taking on Big Pharma or any of these other specific Um, entities that are making billion dollar profits off humans suffering is to go beyond the pre-prescribed conversation that the political elite has has said we will allow in you know they say you have choice but how much choice do you really have when they are so adamant about nullifying the voice of anyone who represents any kind of serious alternative to what they are talking about Bernie also, of course, talked about Yemen, which is an extremely important issue. But for the most part, it was amazing when you saw the debate stage, et cetera, there were no questions about it whatsoever. So I had heard Dennis Kucinich years ago, a congressman, I hope you know who he is, um, uh, talking about the Department of Peace. And you, you mentioned earlier, when you were asking the question, you talked about diplomatic efforts. We now have a defense uh, budget of somewhere around, what, $780 billion. Our, our, uh, our um, State Department budget is $40 billion. So that right there tells you. Now, we, we all know what's going on here. They make it sound complicated, but it's really simple. There's money to be made on war. The problem is, yeah, there are billions of dollars to be made off a, a for a war economy, 53 cents of every dollar spent on, on defense-related expenditures. But what about your chance and the chance of my great-grandchildren and your grandchildren to actually live on this earth if we continue with the trajectory that we're on? Now, this is actually not rocket science. There are ways to wage peace, just as there are ways to wage war. You know, it used to be Um, decades ago, people believed in a a more allopathic model of, of health and healing. You didn't really feel you were responsible for taking care of your body. You didn't really feel you were responsible for lifestyle or exercise choices that led to health, creating good health. You just hoped you didn't get sick. And then if you did get sick, you went to the doctor and hoped that there would be some external remedy that would suppress or eradicate the symptoms. We transitioned, a lot of that transition into a more holistic model had to do with the age crisis, actually, historically. But people began to realize you can't just wait till you get sick. You have to consciously, proactively cultivate health. There are things you do to cultivate health through diet, through exercise, through lifestyle, et cetera. And so there was an understanding that health is not the absence of sickness. Sickness is the absence of health. As we move into the 21st century, move more deeply, we're already in it. In every field except politics, there's the realization of a more holistic, integrative, whole-person paradigm that is necessary in order to actually solve problems. War is the absence of peace. Peace is not the absence of war. So if you continue to act in ways that make violence almost inevitable, Of course, there will be eruption of violence. And then what we have in the United States today is that's okay basically because there's so much money to be made. We have to change our thinking. How do you create peace? There are four elements which are factors that when present statistically indicate there will be a greater incidence of peace and a lower incidence of violence. Number one, expansion of economic opportunities for women. Number two, an expansion of educational opportunities for children. Number three, um, the reduction of violence against women. And number four, the amelioration of unnecessary human despair. So that's where we should be putting money. And also, I don't know if you read the book uh, by Ronan Farrow called War on Peace. It also really tracks. I'm sorry, yeah, the War and Peace, that really tracks how over the last few decades, the State Department has been, has been um, released from its more traditional role and placed more at the service of military options and at the service also of whatever huge uh, multinational corporations want. For instance, uh, Trump's first Secretary of State had been the CEO of Exxon and how even now uh, with uh, with the war with the United States for the sake of an arms deal, supporting, giving aerial support to the war in Yemen that is starving tens of thousands, including children, it's worth noting that Pompeo's response when he was asked how the United States could do something so profoundly immoral how our foreign policy could be so craven that we were willing for blood money to to participate in aerial support without which the crown prince would not be able to prosecute that war. Pompeo's response was, sometimes you can have strategic partnerships with people who do not share your values, which means you've surrendered your values. So this is the conversation that has to begin. We can't just fight the military industrial complex. We have to understand why and a change from a war economy to a peace economy. Now, when people say, oh, but there's so much money to be made, you've got a lot of people who work for the, for the, um, uh, for the military industrial complex. And by the way, I'm not saying there should be no strong military, but we spend hundreds of billions of dollars above and beyond what our military leaders actually say that we need. Right? And we now know that even here in the United States, investment in infrastructure, investment in education, investment in things that actually help people live better lives actually produces more monetary monetary success than it does a war economy. And that war economy can be transitioned. Just like we can transition from a dirty economy to a clean economy, we can transition from a war economy to a peace economy. And I think that the left needs to be very careful um, and acknowledge that there are thousands of people whose jobs are part of this transition and there should be no one left behind in that transition. Um, And I think sometimes we are perceived as not caring about things like that, and we should care and that transition to be careful.
2: Absolutely, you know, I think that you bring so many, uh, what I would consider, and I think to many Americans, you know, many Americans, they want peace, they want to be done with these wars. I mean, people voted for Barack Obama in 2008 with the hope that he would get us out of the wars. And I think to uh, some extent, there were a lot of Trump voters who cast a vote for Donald Trump because they thought that he would get uh, people out of the war. And, you know, one of the things that struck me uh, during your campaign was, um, you know, uh, how many of these things that I would consider, you know, obvious, necessary proposals were greeted with, you know, such smears. It seems that that anytime that anybody, uh, you know, particularly a a woman candidate uh, thought to challenge the uh, uh, military industrial uh, complex, you know, there were smears against you and Tulsi Gabbard, who you, you mentioned early, And, you know, from many prominent Democrats, a party that brands itself as a party of women, you know, resorting to what seemed like, frankly, blatantly sexist uh, sexist attempts to undermine your credibility, your intelligence, and your ability to lead uh, by, you know, claiming that you were some, you know, hokey, kooky woman who wanted peace, which is an impossibility. Like, how could we ever have that? I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that experience, what that was like to be the focal point of smears from a party that you thought was your own, and, and also if that, you know, uh, changed your political position at all and how you felt about the Democratic Party?
1: On a personal level, it was very painful. And it was also surprising because I naively thought that our side didn't act that way. I had mentioned things like Latin America. Uh, I I had mentioned certain things uh, on the the debate stage, which clearly made somebody say, in a very high position, say, get that woman off the stage. Uh, Tulsi herself said to me later, She said, you know, you and I, it wasn't that we saw things that other candidates didn't see, but we were willing to look at the people and say, we see you. So within three days, of course, the smears began and the the talking points were so uh, obviously uh, consciously drawn, dangerous, crazy. It was was almost like something out of the middle ages or something, she's dangerous, she's crazy, she's a grifter, she's anti-medicine, she's anti-science. but also, I think it's worth noting how easily duped people were. I mean, that was, you know, it, you really got to see how easy it is uh, to make a joke of someone. And of course, this is how that character assassinates. It's very interesting. The, the strategy is not to shut someone up. The strategy is just to make her appear in a way that the pseudo sophisticates we would think, oh, well, I'm too cool. T- I'm, I'm too smart to listen to her. They see one or two tweets or one or two planted articles or one or two people who know nothing about my work. You know, people writing about my books who clearly have never read my books, talking about my, my work with AIDS patients who clearly, clearly were not there. Um, so yes, on a personal level, it hurt. But then on, on another hand, uh, I should have fought back uh, in ways that uh, I was sort of advised not to. I think the most important thing though is not anyone's personal story, including my own. What is important, however, is that we learn the lessons from that, that we learn how vicious uh, the elite establishment is about protecting its turf. And they feel that their turf is really the, the, whatever the conversation is going to be. And you cannot go to the right, you cannot go to the left, and you cannot go above and you cannot go below it. That's number one. But also I think that many people, since I've seen so many people talking about this, wow, we slept on and Wilson, blah, blah, blah. I hope that people are asking themselves, it's not about me personally, but ask themselves, would you have thought you were a person so easily uh, taken off the track, taken off the, I mean, boy, they didn't have a hard time. That's what was so amazing. That's number one. And number two, would it have been so easy had I been a man? Um, I didn't have any experience in as elected official, neither did Andrew Yang. Um, he's a businessman. Well, actually, I've had my own share of, of experience. So um, I think there are things for people to look at. My own as a person, it's something I went through, something I learned from. But this is much bigger than any one person. And what you see now, the continuation of this, this is what's important now. I'm that that's you know. That was then, this is now. And what you're seeing now, as you clearly are aware, is how progressives are being treated right now. Uh, We know what happened to me and Tulsi, okay. We know what happened to Bernie. We know that progressives were sidelined in the Biden campaign. We know that progressives, for the most part, were left out of the convention. And right now, as we speak, Um, I am one of those people who felt very strongly about electing Biden, because I do believe there was a neo-fascist in the White House, still is for a few days. I I did believe that the existential imperative was to break the free fall of democracy that he represented. But I didn't do so naive about what the neoliberal establishment represents. And I, like many people, am pretty much holding my breath to see what these what these appointments are going to be. I'm very impressed by AOC and others who are holding a line. Uh, When people say wait until the dust settles, that's absurd. Once the dust settles, that means the corporatists have already been been appointed and they will hear us out. Hear us out? No, 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 no. We want to be more than listened to. Um, I have a friend who heads a large uh, nonprofit, anti hunger and anti poverty nonprofit, um, who said something to me years ago that I never forgot. I asked him the difference between the Obama uh, administration and the Bush administration. And his response was very chilling it was the Obama administration returns our calls.
0: Yeah. Well, when it comes to the, you know, the two party establishment and, and, you know, you, you talk about waiting for the dust to settle like uh, so many of the leaders of the progressive left have kind of been doing. Um, you were out there, you know, you definitely didn't wait for the dust to settle. And I think that was probably most evidenced by your presence uh, at the People's Convention, which was a couple of months ago. I thought that your speech um, was one of the absolute highlights of the convention and, and your presence there as a past Democratic Party, I think, really gave the People's Party a lot of clout and made people pay more attention to them. Um, we talk about uh, the subject a lot of here at the Vanguard, um, you know, how the best way to get a progressive in the White House would be as soon as possible, and, and whether it would be more effective to try to run again like Bernie did as a Democrat or, and like you did, um, knowing that once again, they're going to put their thumbs on the scale and, you know, mess around behind the scenes and screw with democracy. Um, uh, you accurately described uh, what happened to Bernie as a coup. I thought that was very um, accurate back when that went down. Um
2: and courageous I mean, to say, frankly,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, what did you say Zach?
2: Oh, I said, and courageous to say a lot of people resisted the urge to defend or the resisted uh, defending Bernie Sanders. I just well, wanted to call
1: on because that. as soon as I tweeted that, I got a phone call from the Bernie campaign asking me to take it down.
2: yeah, it sounds like Bernie well,
0: <laughs> yeah that that,
1: well, I don't know that's... that came from him
2: personally.
0: oh sure. I, I, I meant sounds like yeah, I don't think
1: Bernie he... Sanders was personally tracking my tweets that night, but For
0: sure. You know. That well, uh, and and we support you know, movement for a people's party pretty heavily here again. Uh, we're a huge fan of your speech there. Um, and and we think that they have you know, somewhat exciting potential when it comes to the next presidential election, hopefully, when it comes to third parties. Obviously, I've been on the uh, you know, voting green for a while, that's not uh, really getting us the results we we need. Um, what, what are you what's your thinking on uh, this strategically as far as the people's party or third parties go? And, and if you ever made another run for office, would you consider running as a people's party candidate?
1: I feel the same conflict and ambivalence and disturbance in my heart that I think many, many people feel. I think I have great respect for Nick Branagh. I think he's really great. I have great respect for what he's doing and I think it's important. So that's without, I mean, that's absolutely true for me. It's also true that that 87,000 votes that Jill Stein got put Trump in the White House. And that's no small thing either. I understand though, I understand all of the arguments and all of those arguments live in me. Those arguments about how Obama's presidency paved the way, neoliberalism paved the way for Trump. How if um, uh, the neoliberal trajectory is simply uh, reformed and we see the same thing happening now, that happened uh, before with the neoliberals that I do believe we will be in big trouble in 22 and in 24. I personally, and I think some of this might have to do with my age. Unlike you, I have, because of simply the longer time that I've been on this earth, I have a historical memory of a time when the Democrats did indisputably stand for the working people of America. I saw the slide, I was there for it. I saw what happened when 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 Clinton formed the Democratic Leadership Council, et cetera. I feel sort of like, I know this sounds almost like a silly image, but it's not. I feel like a woman in a marriage, not that they're married to me. The Democratic Party made it very clear. <laughs> Gay is not to hate, there's a Yiddish expression. Gay is not to hate, they don't care, they, they don't care. But I'm still like tied to the marriage and I can't leave the marriage unless and until I feel I've done everything possible. And so I'm right now standing with the AOC type of crowd. Uh, Jamal Bowman is there now, uh, Mondaire Jones, Cori Bush. I have a lot of faith, certainly in their intention. I'm very disturbed that they, I cannot believe that they reelected Nancy Pelosi
2: Yeah, that was a question that I actually wanted to ask you about. Uh, Do you have a a comment on that? They even ran against
1: her. Any business that rewarded failure the way the Democratic Party does would not long survive. When Newt Gingrich was the Republican Speaker of the House and they lost, he resigned the next day. You know, a lot of this, I think, has to do with the fact that um, a lot of Republicans come from the private sector more so and they certainly have a more free market private sector perspective not really free market but you don't understand what i'm saying sure they know in the private sector that if something's not working on wednesday you have to change it by friday or the company goes down the democrats have more of a it didn't work on wednesday but we'll just throw some more money at it and maybe that'll fix it by friday and if by monday it's obvious it's still not working I don't know what their excuse is for doing it anyway. And we're not allowed to have the conversation about, for instance, Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer is just given that role again where he's basically calling the shots for the Democratic senatorial campaign. After
2: the Jamie Harrison race? After the- Jamie
1: Harrison, even more Charles Booker and and Amy
2: McGrath. Yeah, I just meant the money that was wasted on that campaign.
1: Not just the money, but what makes them think that a New York senator knows what kentuckyites want so he had one good campaign commercial with amy mcgrath and next to her airplane and based on that one tv commercial raised what 100 million dollars and she ultimately lost by 10 percentage points barely better than marquita bradshaw in tennessee, hardly tennessee. i think it was and, more than
0: 10 i think it was like 20 or 30 or something
1: Yes, and Kentuckyites made it clear where the energy was. The energy was with Charles Booker. Now I was a Breuer fan, so but but I could see that Booker—they were both the progressives—and I could see that Booker had the energy, the audacity. When caught, uh, the the Kentuckyites were saying, "We got the guy, we got," and the energy and the youth and the and he comes in. Well, we'll pour more money behind behind her, and he is given the job again. And you're not even allowed to have the conversation. It's like you and I, like we're up in the attic or in the garage. We're saying it because we're allowed to say it. it's. Um,
2: it looks like, you know, it, just like corruption, like controlled, you know, opposition. Right. I think that it, it makes oh, people believe that they're just setting goalposts so that they can constantly fundraise off failure.
1: It's um, if it's a sign, which I know many people right now would be saying, open your eyes, Marianne. it clearly is. If it's a sign of how things will go uh, over the next year or so, that's terrible for the Democratic Party and it's terrible for America.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, Well, I I wanted to um, kind of uh, remind the audience, anyone that's listening about one of the most excellent um, aspects of your campaign and that was your policy and commitment to the policy of reparations, uh, I think a lot of lefty voters during the pri- primary um, really started to take you seriously when they heard you speak about your reparations policy. And, and for me specifically, I remember when you went on uh, Dave Rubin's show and, and basically had to explain to him, like a like a school teacher, why the policy would be uh, so necessary or why it's uh, you know something that people are clearly prescribing as an answer to um, you know obviously our history of racial injustice in this country. Um. I was just wondering if you could reflect a little bit on that part of your campaign and and what you think you accomplished specifically by having conversations with uh, people like Dave Rubin on the subject matter.
1: I wrote a book that was published in the late 90s called Healing the Soul of America. And in order to prepare for that book, I actually hired an American history teacher to, to accompany my journey through various books. And It wasn't, I mean, I was a standard liberal on the issue of race, but it wasn't until my studies for that book that my eyes were opened at a deeper level to everything that had happened in this country since 1619. The almost 250 years of slavery that were then followed by, except for 12 years of reconstruction, what is essentially another hundred years of domestic terrorism. I mean, what what do you call Ku Klux Klan and lynchings, et cetera, if not domestic terror and violence that was perpetrated uh, in the American South against black people? The black code laws that that guaranteed they would have subpar economic and educational opportunities. What it meant that we passed the Civil Rights Act in 1964 to uh, dismantle, segregation, what it meant, the Voting Rights Act in 1965, to guarantee universal uh, access uh, to to the ballot, what it meant that in 1968, Martin Luther King died. So the next step, which would have been, I believe, well, first of all, he was already talking about militarism getting out of his lane, which I think is a big reason, I believe, why he was assassinated. But also, he was getting to the issue of the economic gap, the systemic economic gap, that had never been closed, and that was a legacy of slavery. Remember, at the end of the Civil War, there had been the promise of forty acres and a mule. There were historians said there were between four and five million uh, former slaves, uh, formerly enslaved people. At the end of the Civil War, the promise uh, from Tecumseh Sherman was that every former slave family of four would be given the um, forty acres and a mule, which. As you can imagine would have meant okay you're not only no longer a slave but you have the tools that you property owner that can vote that's right pardon
2: oh i just meant a property owner that can now vote also
1: yeah right well you we're years away from that but we're just talking about how they're going to feed themselves sure how they're going to feed their families i mean that 40 acres and a mule they had been spending centuries tending other people's land so they knew how to do it right okay so when I saw all that, and I began myself to have a, a, a clearer view of the timeline and of the journey of race in America, and also very aware that Germany, since World War II, has paid $89 billion in reparations uh, to Jewish organizations, which doesn't mean the Holocaust didn't happen, but it has gone far towards establishing a psychological and emotional reconciliation between Germany and the Jews of Europe. And that war was over in 1945. Our war was over in 1865 and we are still just passing the baton of toxicity and pain from one generation to another. Now I come from a background, my, my professional background is the field of universal spiritual principle. Well, you, you can't go forward in life. It's simply an issue of not only spiritual growth, but just any kind of personal growth. You cannot go forward in life until you've cleaned up the past. I think it was Faulkner who said the past isn't over. In fact, it's not past. So white America, as well as black America needs to complete the job. It wasn't, yes, I I don't want to dishonor any of our ancestors, black or white. The civil war was not nothing, 600,000 people died. That institutionalized form of slavery is ending that, abolishing that, was no small deal. Uh, The Civil Rights Movement was no small deal. Passing the Voting Rights Act was no small deal. I'm not in any way diminishing what has occurred. It's just that not enough has occurred, and it's time for our generation to take the next step of this gaping wound, which is economic restitution.
2: And that's that's one of the
1: reasons I ran for president, because I knew that the conversations that would be dominating the race were likely to not include the things that I believe are the most important things for us to think about and the most important things for us to do, i.e. peace creation, uh, reparations for slavery, and also I had in my campaign and have at least as much now serious concern about millions and millions and millions of traumatized children in the United States and what it's going to mean for this country 10, 15, and 20 years from now.
0: Yeah, 100%. And and again, I just think you're, um, you spoke with the moral clarity on the subject that I don't think was really matched by any other candidate in the race on that issue. And I just wanted to say thank you for bringing it um, to the topic of discussion within the the Democratic Party, at least, because I don't, I think it had been unfairly ignored um, until you kind of broached it, again, not to, um, you know, discount the work of other people that have advocated for reparations, but, um, you know, you bringing it to the, debate stage and on, you know, popular podcasts, like I mentioned, Dave Rubin, stuff like that. Uh, I think it did, you know, make open people's eyes and hearts to the idea. Um, I do have another question for you, Marianne, and something I've always thought was so interesting about um, your particular brand of uh, politics and leftism. And um, personally, growing up in suburban Kansas, uh, surrounded by the influence of evangelical Christianity in my neighborhoods and schools, my personal politics were really heavily informed as a reaction to what I saw as the influence of said religiosity on on the culture around me um, which of course was being manifested at the time largely by the movements against marriage equality science and of course abortion which are still ever present in our society and because of this I've always I've always had a little bit of an adverse reaction to any crossing of the church and state threshold and I've always been put off by politicians on either side of the aisle that incorporate religion into their political messaging but that being said um, when you ran for president, I think that you were very, very successful in, in channeling what I would consider to be a genuinely Christian spirit, and um, that you were advocating for the rights of all of your neighbors and, and railing against the power structures of oppression, just like Jesus actually did and actually taught. Um, what place do you see spirituality as having in your political philosophy or approach? And, and do you see yourself as part of a movement to, on the left to reclaim Christianity from the right, which is so thoroughly, undeniably co-opted? both the Old and New Testament and twisted it for their own uh, political and and capitalistic gain?
1: Well, first of all, I think we need to be clear. Too many people are not clear about what the separation of church and state really is and why it was established and what the founders meant to be doing. When we were children, we all learned about how many people came to this country for religious freedom. So the idea that people could have the right to practice any religion here or no religion, which is also a large part of religious freedom. Any religion or no religion. Thomas Jefferson said, whether a man believes in 20 gods or no gods, neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. That was in no way intended by the founders to keep the religious or spiritual conversation out of the public discourse. What separation of church and state means is that there's no minister, priest, imam, rabbi, monk, etc., can walk into the Capitol and say, as let's say uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini could say in Iran, you can't pass that law or you have to pass this law. They cannot interfere with the functions of government according, just because of their religious dogma. And it also means that no policeman uh, is going to come into a synagogue, a Wicca meeting, an atheist meeting or a Catholic church and say, break it up, you're not on the list. That's the importance of separation of church and state. JFK said we cannot afford to be materially materially rich and spiritually poor. It was Bobby Kennedy who first said, we're fighting for the soul of this country. And when I was growing up, when you and I were talking earlier <clears throat> about the, anti, the Vietnam anti-war movement, there was a very vital religious left uh, in America when I was growing up. There was um, there were the two priests, the Berrigan brothers. There was a man named William Sloan Coffin, who I believe was head of the El Divinity School, I believe, who were very, very active in the anti-war movement. Also, when I grew up, and, and you just said something, Gavin, about, about the Christian spirit. That is also the Jewish spirit, and I am a Jew. Tikkun uh, Olam, to repair the world. The, the issues of spirituality are the universal spiritual themes that apply to all the great religious and spiritual systems. Now, also another thing that's interesting. When I was growing up, a strong social justice um, stance was taken by both Catholics and Jews. Simultaneously, it seems, two things happened which really sucked a lot of juice out of the social justice movements. Both Catholics and Jews institutionally became very, very focused on single issues. The Catholics on abortion and the Jews on Israel. And when that happened, uh, a lot, so until then, it was a big deal when you thought about caring for the poor, et cetera. We had, Lyndon Johnson, remember, he had a war against poverty, right? So when I was growing up, there was a strong sense of, of religious institution And once again, I'm talking about the Berrigan the brothers were Catholic and William Sloan Coffin was Protestant, but you had a serious Protestantism. Now, I don't know where the break and why the break, and, and of course, let's not forget that Dr. King was a Baptist preacher, hello. Nor should we forget that the abolitionist movement in the United States emerged from the early evangelicals in New Hampshire, nor should we forget how many of the women who were uh, leaders in the women's suffrage movement were Quakers and were basing their belief in radical equality on their their religious beliefs, which also was threaded throughout the abolitionist movement. So when you look at the history of social justice movement in the United States, not only has it not been divorced or separated from spiritual impulse, spiritual impulse has driven it. And in many cases, it even emerged there. Once again, Dr. King's pulpit. Right. Okay. so this break occurred. Why it occurred exactly the way it occurred, I I don't understand myself but it definitely occurred. And all of a sudden democratic democratic politics became in my mind deeply over secularized. And an entire generation grew up with their only identification of religious principle with politics being far right wing evangelicals.
2: Well, that would be Gavin and me. Pardon? Oh, that would be us, yeah.
1: Now, the Jews weren't going there so much. The whole Israel thing was taking up a lot that just really ate up that space. The Catholics on an institutional level, the abortion thing it took up that space. What happened to uh, other protestants i don't know you 'll have to ask a Protestant because for the life of me, i don 't know what happened, but it went in a very almost apolitical direction in in many in many in many cases. Now you have a profound voice for social justice from a religious in uh, a religious figure, Reverend Barber, for whom I have tremendous um, admiration, affection, and respect for me. Like when I said that when I look at reparations, to me, it comes from a moral place. It is a, Catholics go to confession, Jews, the, the holiest day of the year is Yom Kippur to atone. In Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a spiritual program, you have to admit the exact nature of your wrongs and your character defects. So for me, it is from a spiritual place why we need to pay reparations. You, you're, you, you have to pure, you have to heal this or it will always be an underlying toxicity. You have to, it is a spiritual principle to take, uh, to take care of the earth that is your home, proper stewardship of the earth. It is a spiritual principle to take care of one another. We are on this earth to love one another. So the Christian ethos, we are on the earth to love each other, the Tukun Olam in Judaism, we are here to repair the, the, uh, to repair the world. Uh, in, in, in Islam, in so many religions, the idea of walk humbly with your God, do justice, do justice, do justice. Now, the qu- so that's where I'm coming from. Sure. But when you asked about the Democratic Party, you know, this gets into what we talked about before. What does the cynic in me say? And what does the hopeful in me say? I was careful before this last election, because I didn't want to say anything that might help somebody aid with their vote or non-vote the second term of Donald Trump. But now, I think it needs to be said. Even when it comes to Black people, even when it comes to religion, you get the feeling that the Democratic Party is checking boxes, and just adding to the mosaic of the identity politics. Maybe if we have this group and then we need to get this group and then we need to get this group rather than the deeper conversations and understanding and dynamics that are necessary. First of all, to to address the wounds, to address the brokenness, but also to create a real field of passionate politics that will be enough to keep the Trump forces at bay in the next two, four, six years, Mm -hmm. as well as create a new future trajectory for this country.
0: I also, I also wanted to ask you a little bit, you mentioned before we um, started the, the Unity Temple here in Kansas City. Um, can you speak a little bit about um, your, uh, that, the Unity um, religion and how that intersects with your own Judaism? Um, I'm, I'm just interested to hear more about that.
1: <clears throat> I'm a student of a set of books called The Course in Miracles. A Course in Miracles is not a religion. There's no dogma. There's no doctrine. It's been uh, referred to as a system of spiritual psychotherapy. It's really a psychological uh, tome about forgiveness. That's really what it's about. It's about releasing a thought system based on fear and accepting instead a thought system based on love. Now, once again, I'm Jewish. Students of The Course in Miracles come from all religions and no religions. Um, the, The... Course in Miracles is a Christ-centered teaching, but it it is not the Christian religion. There's no dogma, there's no doctrine, and it has certainly not in any way diminished my my experience uh, of my own Judaism. If anything, it's deepened it because it deepens my experience of God. Um, The New Thought churches are a Christian denomination, the science of mind, religious science, unity, which have the more open-minded, all the Christ-centered perspective. So you see a lot of people uh, going to the New Thought churches from different religions, and uh, there's great material there. in my career, speaking from the as a student of the Course in Miracles, there were, and I believe are, many people in the New Thought Movement who read A Course in Miracles. And so it was a very, and has been very uh, hospitable to me in my career, including the Unity Temple um, in Kansas City. That's why I know it. I've spoken there quite a few times over the years. Duke Tufty who's a great guy.
2: Um, Yeah, I think that leads into uh, you know we want to be respectful of your time. The last question that I I had for you today was you know you've kind of talked about how uh, you've put you're you're putting a lot of your faith in the progressive wing of the Democratic Party right now to kind of resist the you know part uh, the the wing of war in Wall Street that we'll call the rest of the Democratic Party. Uh, I'm wondering um, if not through a People's Party taking an entirely different approach, but if we're going to you know what does effective resistance look like from the Squad, uh, you know including Mondaire Jones and Jamal Bowman and. these new actors even though they are so severely constrained in how they can resist in the house with just the numbers uh that they're looking at and also a mitch mcconnell death grip on any legislation passing in the senate
1: once again i am so admiring of aoc i think she is and i don't agree with her totally about everything mm-hmm. but i don't have to i mean that's not what politics is
2: sure
1: but the space that she is holding is in my mind the answer to your question she's in there she's boring from within but she refuses to be quiet from day one she's saying no Rama Emanuel, no yeah. um i have faith in what's possible mainly because her of her and i know i i interviewed jamal bowman on my progressive candidate summit and I know he's got the stuff he's got. He's there for the right reason. I just also don't underestimate. And this is one of the reasons why I so admire Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. There's no way Nancy didn't say to her, here's my cell number, darling. <laughs> me." There's no way she wasn't told. Just toe the line and you'll be a big star. And she has refused. Now, on the other hand, her celebrity has given her that uh, opportunity. So you and I are living this question right now. And I like the way Nick Branagh of the People's Party says that when they run candidates in 22, they're only going to run candidates in democr- safe democratic districts. So I'm doing what everybody is doing. You, seem, you guys seem to already have crossed the line into full-on support.
2: I actually voted for Joe Biden, uh, specifically with the war in Yemen and the Iran sanctions in mind and those kinds of issues, though I, for one, had no faith that he would, you know, get behind Medicare for All or the Green New Deal. That's actually a disagreement that Gavin and I hashed out on the podcast.
1: So we'll see what happens. But we cannot afford to just go along because if they... Just take that kind of a direction and do not create an FDR-like massive, massive rescue economically of millions and millions of people. We've got 30 million people who are facing eviction. We've got millions of people who literally don't know how they're going to feed their children. The COVID package has been over $4 trillion and only one-fifth of that went to actually Uh, helping individuals. If Biden does not come in with massive rescue regarding this huge amount of human suffering, whether it has to do with the removal of the college loan debts or anything else, then I believe we will have um, very serious consequences uh, in 22 and in 24 and all of us, you and I, and I think millions of other people are just living the question right now, and for each of us, the answers will come.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And if the Democrats don't really get their act together, it's just going to continue opening the door to more faux populism on the right from characters like Donald Trump or Tucker Carlson or Josh Hawley or whoever else we have coming to Tom Cotton. In right. Tom Cotton. Yeah, just basically. Or even
1: Trump himself again?
0: That's what, yeah, exactly. Uh,
1: his children?
0: Yeah, I think that the Democrats are, they need to wisen up and really do embrace, like you said, kind of New Deal style reforms. If... We have a, you know, prayer of um, stopping the, you know, more working class rural communities from just completely exodus, you know, into the Republican Party, into their, uh, you know, increasingly, um, honestly, somewhat masterful embrace of the, you know, faux populism. Uh, Obviously, Donald Trump's out there talking about how he wants to end the wars and how he's battling the deep state and all the stuff that might sound appealing if you don't actually understand um, what a farce and what a con man he is and what his presidency has been so uh, thank you so much for, you know, your, again, your clarity on this subject. I think you're one of the um, people that really has it right. And and when it comes to MPP versus Democratic Party, you know, I'm personally just kind of waiting to see what happens. I think like everyone, I'm not, you know, my mind isn't 100 percent made up or anything. I think it depends on who, how the Democrats, uh, you know, conduct their nominating process in 2024. Uh, but I, I'm just, you know, I'm really not excited to have to get behind, you know, Andrew Cuomo or Kamala Harris or, or whatever that they're going to, you know, Wretch up at us in uh, at the expense of an actual grassroots progressive um candidate like someone like yourself who uh, i really hope uh, you know runs again to be honest
1: thank you thank you so much uh i i agree with you 100 percent. i feel the same way and uh it's it's um inspiring to me as i'm sure it is to you as you do your podcast just to see how many people are out there uh aligned in the same kind of thinking, the same kind of questioning, the same kind of enthusiasm and motivation to turn things around.
2: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Marianne. We had a, a great yeah. time. And, um, you know, uh,
0: just thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Marianne. We hope to speak to you again at some point in the, in the future. Uh, it was I'll such an illuminating conversation and uh, continue to, um, you know, pay attention. Fight to the good respect. fight. And also, if anyone's listening, make sure to check out uh, your Marianne Williamson's podcast, which is recent. She just had the great Nina Turner on. Amazing episode. Uh, is there anywhere else people can check out um, You know, your stuff, your books, your your work?
1: Yes, I can go to Marianne.com uh, or I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. But that Twitter page has all my political stuff uh, pretty much all day, every day.
0: Yeah. we're awesome. being- Well, thank you
2: so much, Marianne. Have a good rest yeah. of your day.
0: Links in the description for anyone that's watching. Thanks again, Marianne.